Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of First Peter. Be continuing on in First Peter, chapter one. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded of a story I heard of a man. He was in college. He was in a college philosophy class taught by a professor who is a self-professed nihilist, uh, someone who believes there's no objective meaning or purpose in life, and the only real thing to do, the only logical thing, is to do whatever you want. And the student had to write a three-page paper on why uh, nihilism is the only consistent way to live. And so he wrote on one page, I don't want to write this paper, and stapled two blank sheets to the back of it and turned it in. And the professor was furious and pulled him out of the classroom and lectured him without any sense of the lack of his own self-awareness and inconsistency. The professor was professing nihilism, but got irate when someone actually lived it out, revealing he wasn't a uh, nihilist at all. And likewise, if we profess to believe the gospel, it will necessarily influence our thoughts and actions, how we live our lives, what we believe motivates our lives. And that's exactly what Peter launches into in our text this morning. So I'll read for us verses 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for this time to study your word, to consider uh, your calling to us as your people, as your children, and how we are to live and move and have our being in this world. For we pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that uh, we would not harden them. Um, instead, we would hear your word and seek to apply it to our lives in our minds and our hearts this morning. Lord, work by your spirit, convicting us of sin and encouraging us in righteousness. In Christ's name, amen. Peter, so far in the beginning of chapter one, has been encouraging his readers in their sufferings, in their spiritual life. With He's been encouraging them with glorious truths about who God is and who Christ is and what God has done for them. He opened his letter with a, a beautiful call to remember that they are God's elect, even in their dispersion. Uh, that they have a beautiful inheritance in heaven. That they are undergoing trials that are for their good and God's glory. That they are joined with the true Israel and are seeing and engaging with the fulfillment of God's plan since the beginning of time and throughout the Old Testament. And these are very encouraging and heart-lifting things that he is reminding them of. And now Peter turns to how they ought to respond to these truths. 
in seminary and other places as we learn to preach and teach and interpret the Bible, there's an old adage that's helpful and helps us understand the relationship between doctrine and life. And that is, uh, what is true leads us to what to do. A fancy way of saying that is, the indicatives of Scripture, what's true, lead us to the imperatives of Scripture, what to do. And we know that in our own lives, knowledge and belief is required to motivate behavior. I mean, if I just tell you all, you know, get up, get outside. See, no one does it. No one really believes I'm telling them to do that. Bare commands rarely are enough to motivate behavior, but if there's a rabid wolf in the back of the sanctuary... And I say, get up and run. And you look and you see what is true. The presence of a wolf that's going to attack and maybe kill you motivates you to obey the command, to run to safety. Likewise, bare mental propositions without calls to live them out are empty and purposeless. Scripture is not just merely concerned with our hearts and our heads, though that's a large part of Scripture. It is concerned about that, but not purely It's concerned with our whole being, including our actions and how we live. We see that in the greatest commandment. When Christ tells the Pharisees the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's a full-orbed, holistic experience to love God and follow Him. Or Christ's own words, that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I told you to do. Our behavior matters. And we profess Christianity and yet fail to live it out. We show that we don't really believe what we claim to believe. Of course, like with all truth, there's potential pitfalls and dangers. And we can become so concerned with our behavior that we think that our salvation rests upon it or that God's love rests upon it. That if we fail or stumble, we can lose God's love or adoption of us. But as we'll see, that's impossible for true Christians. But we can also go the other way. We can be so focused on a flawed understanding of grace that we think that our behavior doesn't matter. We think God doesn't really care what we do. We're forgiven, and that's all that matters. And of course, both of these are wrong responses to the truths of Scripture. And Peter here in this passage gives several ways the truths he's just finished going through should be reflected in the lives of his readers And today we're going to talk about in detail uh, some what that means for our lives as well. My theme this morning is our lives ought to reflect our identity as being bought with Christ's blood. Our lives ought to reflect our identity as being bought with Christ's blood. We ought to live out being Christian. We'll see that as we work through the danger of passivity, the demand for holiness, and the uh, dependency of on Christ's blood. So let's talk about the danger of passivity first. Peter opens with a call in verse uh, 13. He says, therefore. And he's showing that what he's about to say logically and rightly flows from everything he said already. That this is the outcome. This is the natural course of things. In light of all this beautiful truth, what are we supposed to do? What follows? And he says, we are to be Preparing our minds for action. Being sober-minded and to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter commands this because all too often we don't do these things. 
If it were easy, he wouldn't command it. What's easy is the opposite. It's easy to be passive. But passivity is deadly to the Christian life. Peter commands us to prepare our minds for action, literally, in the Greek, girding up the loins of our minds. It's an interesting idiom that denotes readiness for hard work. Uh, Many men in those days would wear a tunic uh, that would hang low, almost like a dress in a sense. And uh, when they had to work, if you had to run or fight or engage in some kind of action, obviously, it would get in the way, and so they would gird it up. They'd take the excess fabric and wrap it around their waist and loins, and they'd be ready to fight or to work. Um, It's this idea of getting ready to do something that requires energy, that requires activity. Uh, um, We might say, you know, today, roll up the sleeves of your mind, or get, get the work boots of your mind on, or various other things, denoting we've got work to do. We've got battles to fight. This is going to require action and effort. We need to get ready for this. Preparing your minds for action makes sense, literally, the the way the ESV translates it. But it misses some of the oomph for me, I think, Um, the original. This isn't just a, hmm, yes, let's prepare our minds. Let's think and get into this kind of ivory tower type of thing. This is a, a call to his audience to take what he's saying seriously to work at it it's very visceral imagery here and that's doubly emphasized by what he says next that we are to be sober-minded this is life and death stuff this isn't uh light stuff this is intensely important This isn't just whether you want pizza or pork chops for dinner. These are weighty and meaningful things that deserve our full weight of thought and consideration. And the temptation, an easy thing to do for us, is to treat them lightly. After all, that's the call of our culture in many ways, and that's the temptation in our heart to treat almost all things as a light thing. Like the the nihilist, we can think, what's the point, really? What does it matter? Who cares about these things, what Peter's calling us to consider and do. But Peter says, no. We need to prepare our minds as if we're going to war. We need to treat what he's about to say like it's the most serious thing in the world. And what he tells us to do is to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we are to set our hope fully on the reward. The resurrection, the new heavens, and the new earth. And this does require effort. It requires violence in a sense. It requires serious and diligent work. When we loll and laze, what inevitably happens is that we begin to place our hope in other things. Our passivity leads us to drifting off course. And like a driver lulled to sleep by his lack of attention and effort, we end up in a ditch, in a wreck. We begin placing our hope in other things that can never satisfy. It's easy and simple to do. Uh, Personally, as I was thinking through this, uh, I thought of the fight and the struggle it was for Rachel and myself to place our hope fully on the resurrection and the new heavens in the midst of cancer and death. It's easy to hope in medicine. It's easy to hope in happy endings. It's easy to hope in healing. It's easy to hope it's going to go the way we want it to go and 
That's what we want. That's what everyone wants. But how hollow those things were when the walls closed in. I remember the moment in the hospital when it was set and certain, and in that moment and others, we had to prepare our minds for action. We had to be sober-minded. We had to decide where was our hope. Because medicine had failed, healing had failed, happy endings had failed, all the things we were tempted to hope in had failed. And what do you do? Give in to despair. Give in to nothingness. No. We had to purposely, violently even, aggressively set our hope on the grace that would be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The hope of resurrection and new heavens and a new thing. It was a fight and it's not easy. And while of course that's an extreme example, the same fight is present every day of our lives. Every day we're bombarded with all kinds of things, big and little, to place our trust in. All kinds of idols and little gods clamor for our hearts and our hope. We're in the midst of a constant war. And when we're passive, they overwhelm us without us even realizing it. We begin worshiping other things and finding our hope in them. It takes conscious effort and even mental and spiritual violence to fight these things. That's why Paul so often uses militaristic language to describe the same concept. Uh, think of 2 Corinthians ten four through 5 uh, where he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul uses very uh, aggressive language here to describe his mental life, how he prepares his mind for action, taking every thought captive to obey Christ, destroying arguments and all these lies and temptations that might come into him to get him to pull his eyes off his true hope. Or Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Uh, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day. He goes on to talk about putting on the breastplate of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. Again, this idea that we have to reject passivity, that we are in a a warfare, a fight, that we are called to gird up the loins of our mind, prepare for action, and reject passivity. But not in a literal sense. We don't fight literal, physical things, but spiritual, mental, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be ours in the last day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, uh, Peter tells us to reject passivity. That's a danger for us. But that's not all he commands. He not only warns of the danger of passivity, he demands holiness. In verses 14 and on, he tells us, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
Not only are we to hope in the grace that is to be ours, that hope ought to lead us uh, to behavior in line with that hope or holiness. Peter says that we are to be like obedient children listening to our Father and doing what our Father commands. We are to be holy. And he quotes from Leviticus 19.2 to support this, where God commanded Israel to be holy as he is holy. We long for and hope for the day when Christ returns and erases sin and remakes us completely in, the Im- in his image. And Peter says if our hope is to be with him, free from sin, completely perfect, that hope ought to influence how we live today. That we ought to pursue that even now. We ought to be holy as God is holy. And I love the way that's phrased. Uh, holiness as Peter says here, as Leviticus says, is nothing less than being like God. And as his, uh, as his children, we want to be like our Father. Certainly we've seen this in our children. I remember this when I was a kid. I, I love my dad. I, I love seeing his good qualities. And even today, I see in myself echoes of that. And I want to follow him in those things. I see my dad's a great gardener and he teaches me things all the time, and I look at him, his garden and look at what he does. I'm like, I want to do that because my dad does that. He's really good at that, and he inspires me to follow in his footsteps in the good ways. Of course, our earthly fathers aren't perfect, but there's a good and right desire for us when we're children and even as adults to emulate and copy our parents. Peter says, God is our father. He is our standard. He is the one we should be seeking to be like. And since he is holy, we too need to strive for holiness. And while there is a natural bent to following our fathers, we know that it's not necessarily easy. If it were easy, Peter wouldn't have to command it. Instead, he needs to remind his readers to be holy in all their conduct. And we need this reminder as well. Are you a holy person? a good question to ask are are you holy could you be called holy if we were to ask your spouse your children your co-workers would they consider you holy would they describe you as man yeah he's a holy person she's a holy person what about the people on the road with you would they describe you as holy we might be hesitant to use such descriptions of ourselves out of a kind of humility we, we do want to be aware of our sin. We do want to be aware of our failures. Uh, but the Bible doesn't only list the failures of the fallen men and women within it. It also lists their holy deeds and commends them and lifts them up as good examples to follow. We can think of Hebrews 11, a, a chapter devoted to Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Isaac and, and others. And yes, the Bible also re- re- <laughs> recounts all their failures in other places. Abraham's adultery, Abraham's fear, um, David's murder and adultery, Moses' anger, rebellion. But it also recounts their holy deeds and lifts them up as examples for us to follow. Both are true, and it's appropriate and good to pursue holiness and to recognize holiness in ourselves and in others not a bad thing to say the lord's done a great work he, he has helped me become more holy in this area i see that in myself and even better i see that in you encouraging others saying i see how the lord has worked in you, you you're not as angry as we used to be you're kinder you're gentler 
um, you haven't struggled with whatever sin it might be in a long time, recognizing our growth in holiness. Unfortunately, some of our hesitancy to recognize holiness might not only come from an understanding of our sin, but a bad lack of understanding of what holiness actually is. I'm regularly amazed by the knowledge many other people have. Uh, I remember there was a visitor to my house uh, a couple years ago, and he was walking around. He was telling me about all the different trees and and plants on my property. Uh, I had no idea. I'm not good. I don't know all the different kinds of trees. I might could tell you what what an oak is. I mean, I know crepe myrtle and a couple others, but I don't know the difference between a red oak or a white oak or uh, various other things. But he knew. He did, and he was telling me. And it was really encouraging. I was so blessed because he knew what to look for and appreciated what he saw. And for us to know what to strive for and what to appreciate uh, in the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in us and others, we must know what holiness is. And the general standard given here is God. God himself. God says, be holy for I am holy. God's characters and commands are the standard of what we are to be and do. Which means holiness is defined by his revelation of himself to us. Where God tells us, this is who I am. This is what I require of you. And so what does God demand of us? Unfortunately, time would fail this morning to go into all the details. Assuming we want lunch and dinner. Uh, It would take a long time. That's part of what, why we come to church, to hear God's word and study his word, is to learn. God, what do you require of me? What is holiness? What does it mean to be like you? But to start, one of the things we consider is his law. Peter's quoting from the law, Leviticus 19, too, to establish this point here. He's applying an Old Testament verse to Christians today and say, hey, this still applies to you. And so we can think of, for instance, the Ten Commandments to start. Do you worship God alone? Do you avoid making idols? Do you honor his name? Do you rest on his day? Do you honor your father and mother and refrain from murder and refrain from adultery? And do you avoid theft? Do you tell the truth? Do you keep yourself from coveting? And of course, we know that's not all. Jesus himself expounded upon the law, saying that, you know, you're not just just supposed to not murder. If you even get angry with someone that's murdering in their heart. It's not enough just to not commit adultery. If you even lust after someone, that's adultery of your heart. Of course, we know that's not all. Paul adds more in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Uh, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Uh, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. Scriptures go on and on. They they tell us clearly. What we are to do and to be. And Paul follows Peter's same course here. Reminding the Corinthians that this was you. This is how you used to act. As Peter says. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But now you must live as who you truly are. Those who are in Christ. Those who have been declared holy by Christ's blood. And now must live 
in light of that truth. Because even though we're children of God, Peter reminds us that the God we call Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. In verse 17, if you call on him who's Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. While we are free from God's judgment unto damnation through Christ's blood and work, we still would stand before him. We still would be judged. Our deeds will be exposed, not for punishments, but for rewards. We will stand before Christ and he will gauge our lives and our faithfulness, and that should lead us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our lives here. Not fear of hell, but fear of not living up to the glorious and beautiful standard our Father has given to us. Peter commands, demands holiness. God demands us to follow him, to consider our lives, to consider our actions, to bring our behavior and thoughts and hopes in line with the truth we confess. Peter demands and urges his audience for holiness, but he doesn't want them to take this and think that their deeds will win them heaven. Of course, we know, as I mentioned earlier, that's potential downfall, potential pitfall. It's become so focused on our work, so focused on holiness, where we feel that everything, our salvation depends on it. He recognizes his words could lead, it, lead his listeners into this, and so he finishes with a reminder that their salva- salvation depends on the blood of Christ. We see that in verse 18, that they're to be conducting themselves with fear, they're to be pursuing holiness. All the while, in verse 18 he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I love the imagery that Peter uses here and throughout this passage, throughout his epistle. Peter's really a beautiful uh, writer. Uh, Paul's good and says lots of wonderful things, but Peter really has a way of using imagery uh, that strikes me at least. He writes beautifully here of the Christian's hope and assurance. We need to be fighting passivity, violently setting our hope on the future reward of the new heavens and the new earth. We need to be pursuing holiness and fighting sin and becoming more like our Father. But oh, how we also need to be dwelling on these beautiful truths as well. Peter has urged them and us not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. And now he reminds them of what ransomed them from those ways in the first place. It wasn't gold or silver, though those are precious and valuable. And that's striking to me. You think about your life, my life, much of our lives revolve around the importance of wealth. Most of our problems and worries could be solved through wealth, or at least so we think, and many of them could. And there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves and rightly used. Paul reminds us that if someone doesn't provide for his own household, that he's worse than an unbeliever. Uh, that ministers deserve their wages. That um, God gives every good gift for us to enjoy. Money's not the issue. The issue is thinking that money is a panacea for our problems rather than a tool God gives. And ultimately it's useless for the things that truly ail us. 
No amount of funny, uh, no amount of money, can fix sin or pay the debt we owe. By our sin, we incur an infinite debt, so much so that even our own death could not pay the price for the wrong we had done, but only an eternity of death and damnation. What good can gold or silver or any perishable earthly thing do to settle that debt? If God wanted gold, he could speak and create an entire planet made of pure gold. If he wanted our efforts, he could decree it and a host of angels could accomplish whatever he wanted far quicker and easier than we could. There's nothing we can offer to him, nothing we can give that he doesn't already have or need. We have no bargaining chip at his table. Pharaoh tried that in Exodus during the plagues. Uh, He fancied himself a god. And so when God came and uh, was hammering Egypt with judgment, Pharaoh tried multiple times to bargain with God. Deity to deity. The Israelites can worship you just in Egypt. Then later, the Israelites can go, but just the men, not the women and children. He tried to say, you know... Yahweh, I've got something you want, these Israelites. I have power. I have a bargaining chip. I have something you need. And so let's come to the table. Let's figure a deal. Let's strike a deal. Because we're both gods here. But Pharaoh misjudged the severity of his situation. God didn't need his permission to take the Israelites out. Pharaoh had no bargaining chip. He had nothing. God didn't. God could have teleported the Israelites out. He could have done anything. No. No amount of power, no amount of Pharaoh's power or wealth could mean anything to the Lord. And you and I have no bargaining chip, only the option. Are we going to be an example of God's grace or an example of God's wrath? And the only way to gain God's grace is through the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, as Peter says. And I I bring up Pharaoh specifically because I think Peter had him in mind here in writing this passage, or at least Pharaoh is in Peter's thoughts around this time because the language he uses here would have been instantly recognizable to any Hebrew. This is language of the Passover lamb in Exodus. This idea of a lamb without blemish or spot. This was the kind of lamb that God said must be used for Passover. That would be slain and its blood would be put on the doorway of the house so that God's judgment would pass over that uh, household. I think Peter has Pharaoh and Passover in mind as he's writing this. And if all the riches and power of Pharaoh himself could not stop God's judgment, what hope do you or I have with our savings and 401k? You might have a little bit more hope than I do, but it ain't much. There is no hope in gold or silver or things. There's no hope in power. There's only hope in Christ's blood. And that shows just how truly precious it is. I mean, think about how earnestly we chase after money. I mean, if you were offered a job making, let's say, you know, $10 million a year, what sacrifices would you make for that? Surely, Surely you'd move. Surely you'd, you know, work more than you'd want to maybe surely you'd do a lot that you otherwise wouldn't for the sake of that and as long as it's nothing sinful as long as it's not wrong there wouldn't be anything wrong with that 
fact, if you came to me and said, Jacob, you know, I'm thinking of moving to take a job, making three times as much, I'd call you a fool if you didn't go. Like, why wouldn't you go? If you love the job, if it's good, if it's a good church in the area, whatever it might be, there are other considerations beyond money, of course, but surely we go. Many of you are here in Huntsville because of choices motivated by money and wealth and jobs. One day you might move for another job. But Peter's point here isn't gold and silver are bad. It's a comparison. It's saying, look at all Pharaoh's wealth and power. Look at gold and silver. And no, it's as valuable as dirt next to the value and preciousness of Christ's blood for us. And if we're so motivated by the value of money, how much more ought we be motivated by the value of his blood? Blood that causes us to be believers in God who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope is in God. Peter reminds us that our salvation, obedience, and hope all rest on Christ's blood and work. And so we depend on his blood for our salvation, for our hope. We pursue holiness, not because we depend on our works to be saved, but because Christ has bought us and made us children of God, and we want to be like our Father. We prepare our minds for action and reject passivity and set our hope on the new heavens and earth because that's where we'll finally see our beloved Savior. We depend on His blood. I started this story, uh, this sermon, with the story of the, the nihilist whose behavior showed he wasn't truly a nihilist. And I ended now by asking you, what do you believe? You can tell me. You maybe can quote the confession or the scriptures. And that is important. I'm not denigrating that. We must know what we believe. We must be able to, to speak it, to, to say it. But if we don't live it out, if our lives don't, lives don't reflect our identity as being bought with Christ's blood, then it's all empty. Good theology leaves scars. It molds us and shapes us and hurts us. If we come and partake in the sermon and the scriptures and songs and sacraments and leave and go right back to the way things were, did we even partake in the first place? Brothers and sisters, my earnest desire for, for me, for us, is to be a people scarred by the word of God. A people who actively and violently fight our natural passive inclinations to look for other things for hope. A people who strive for holiness and kill our sin. A people who value Christ's blood above all silver and gold and depend on it. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for you, for all of God's people. And that's what Peter wants for us too. That's what the Lord wants. That's what our text this morning calls us to and reminds us of. And so this morning, let us prepare our minds for action and seek how we can do these things this week and ask for God's help to do so. If you would, pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that you've made us your children by Christ's blood, that we stood neath a debt that we could never afford, and yet Christ paid that for us. Lord, grip our hearts and grip our minds with the, the beauty of that, the incomprehensibility of that. Help us, Lord, to know that, depend on that. May that be our source of hope and rest. And Lord, may we live in light of that. Lord, help us to fight our sin, to pursue holiness. May we be known as holy people. Yes, we sin. Yes, we fail. Yes, we flounder and struggle and fight. But Lord, 
We pray that we would be known by our earnest desire and efforts to greater righteousness, to be like our Father. And Lord, help us to reject passivity. Lord, may we wake up and choose to consider you, to set our hope on you. Lord, do these things. Give us the strength by your spirit, by your scriptures, by your sacraments. Lord, work these things in our hearts and lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.